like to welcome you to the series on the cutting edges uh, between Christianity and Islam, particularly a number of comparative issues from a Christian point of view. We're going to be discussing some exclusively Islamic issues, <coughs> some exclusively Christian issues. Many times we're going to be looking at the two together. But the main purpose of this series is to get down to the issues between Christians and Muslims, particularly in Christian outreach, and to help you to ground your witness to be able to defend it effectively and to know how to witness from a position of perhaps an apologetic base to share the gospel with Muslims. <clears throat> We're going to kick off our first talk on the subject of the textual history of the Quran. Now, if you're not too familiar with the Quran, uh, you may not be aware of the fact that it's a very different kind of book to most books. Wherever you go into a bookshop and you buy a book, you'll find the book was carefully planned out. It's given an introduction, given a conclusion, and the chapters were put in some kind of specific chronological sequence to make sure that the book was harmonized. The Quran is a very different kind of book. It's a book that came piecemeal during the time of Muhammad to him, as he alleged, from above. He claims that it was on a <coughs> preserved tablet in heaven, the whole book recorded in Arabic, but that once it uh, was received by him, given to him in patches. The people began to recite, the Muslims, the early Muslims recited the text of the Quran, learnt it by heart. And over the years, the, the book just simply accumulated. It wasn't even really a book. You couldn't call it that at that stage. It was just a, a revelation. The manuscripts came later. And it was only towards the end of his life that people even began to write down any of the portions of the Quran that they were hearing up till then. The main aim was just to learn to recite it. And the Quran was completed simply by Muhammad's death. After that, uh, obviously, there would be no further revelations. And yet, while he was still alive, there seemed to be always a possibility that more should come. So most people who followed him just didn't concern themselves with putting it into book form. In fact, in the Sahih of al-Bukhari, uh, volume 6, page 474, I'm using Dr. Muhammad Muxin Khan's uh, nine-volume translation for the references. Uh, we read that Allah sent down his divine inspiration to his apostle continuously and abundantly during the period preceding his death till he took him unto him. That was the period of the greatest part of revelation and Allah's apostle died after that. So with more and more texts coming on an increasing basis, you can understand why the Muslims and why Muhammad himself did not try to compile anything into a book form. Uh, Suyuti, who is a well-known uh, scholar of Islam from the 9th century after Muhammad, wrote a very famous book, Al-Itqan fi Ulumul Quran. He said that during the lifetime, the Prophet had never been uh, assembled into a single text, Arabic expression, Mus'haf Wahid meaning that it was only thereafter that anybody thought that the book should be compiled. At the time, uh, some of the followers of Muhammad were said to have known the Quran exceptionally well, even completely. The people named generally in the traditions of Islam are his close companions, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, uh, Salim, who was the freed slave of Abu Hudayfa, Mu'ad ibn Jabal, and Ubay ibn Kaab. They mentioned as the foremost reciters of the Quran in the Sahih Bukhari, volume 5 and page 97. But four of them, according to Bukhari in a 
tradition on the same page, are said to have collected the Qur'an. In other words, they had actually gone out of their way to master the whole text. Ubay ibn Ka'b is one of them, Murad, Abu Zaid, and Muhammad's son-in-law, Zaid ibn Thabit. <clears throat> Shortly after the death of Muhammad, a number of the clans and tribes that had converted to Islam in the Arabian Peninsula began to revolt against Islam, try to shake it off. And Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's successor and the first Khalifa of Islam, sent an army out to subdue them. And the Battle of Yamama resulted. And many of the people who knew the Quran exceptionally well were killed in this battle. And we read in the Kitab al-Masahif of Ibn Abi Dawud, many of the companions of the Prophet of Allah had their own readings of the Quran. But they died and their readings disappeared soon afterwards. Uh, this book, incidentally, uh, is one of the very earliest books in Islamic history on how the Quran was compiled. Uh, Ibn Abi Dawud was the son of the famous Abu Dawud, who <coughs> wrote one of the major hadith works, the Sunan of Abu Dawud. <coughs> but he concentrated purely on the text of the Quran, so he called the book Kitab al-Masahif, meaning the book of the manuscripts. But you can see that right from the beginning, readings of the Quran according to Islamic history were beginning to disappear. And it began to concern the early Muslims. And at a very early date, Abu Bakr went to Zaid ibn Thabit and said to him, you must compile the Quran in a book form so that we preserve it. Because if we allow more and more of the Qur'an, the reciters, to pass away, we're going to lose it. And Zaid's reaction is very interesting. He said, by Allah, if they had ordered me to shift one of the mountains, <clears throat> it would not have been heavier for me than this ordering to collect the Qur'an. Then I said to Abu Bakr, how do you propose to do something which Allah's apostle did not do? But Abu Bakr simply replied, by Allah, it's a good project. <clears throat> now I find this interesting because the Muslim world today claims that the Qur'an has been perfectly preserved to the last dot and letter. And if you go back to the early days, you would have to presume that that was only possible if there were a number of reciters who knew the Qur'an perfectly to the last dot and letter. Uh, it would have been a simple thing for Zaid, either himself or to go to any one of the companions of Muhammad who knew the Qur'an well and say, <clears throat> give it to me and I'll just simply write it out. But Zaid was overwhelmed and he, he sensed that he was going to have to put a lot of work into this, do quite a bit of research. And his hesitancy just shows how he felt about this. He wasn't too sure that this was going to be an easy task. The Quran, as I say, was not a book that had been compiled at all. In fact, it was scattered piecemeal in various forms among the companions of Muhammad. So he said that he began to search for the Quran. And I'm going to quote to you from the Sahih of al-Bukhari, again, from volume 6 and page 478 where they quote Sayyid as follows. So I started looking for the Qur'an and collected it from what was written on palm leaf stalks, thin white stones, and also from men who knew it by heart. Till I found the last verse of Surat al-Tawbah with Abu Khazaima al-Ansari, and I did not find with anybody other than him. He said that he only used two sources. One was the Arika'ah, the parchments, that is the written text of the Qur'an in bits and pieces, and the rest he said he learned from the Sudur Arijal, which are the breasts of men, in other words, human memory. 
Uh, so Yutik mentions that in page 137 of his text of the Itkan, which I'm going to be quoting a couple of times. I'm using the publication in Arabic by Biblio Verlach from Osnabrück in 1980 in two volumes. That's where my references are coming from. But the interesting thing is that even at this stage where you can see that Zaid was moving around to compile the Quran and was in fact found only one of the texts with one particular companion of Muhammad and no one but him, that he was not alone in actually trying to compile a codex of the Quran and was not even the first to do so. <clears throat> Suyuti, quoting again, page 135, says, It is reported from Ibn Buraida who said, the first of those to collect the Qur'an into a mushaf, into a codex, was Salim, the freed save of Abu Hudayfa. Significantly, Salim, this Salim, is mentioned as one of the four who knew the Qur'an exceptionally well. And he was one of the Qura who were killed at Yamama. Well, Zaid, in fairness to him, went about studiously collecting the text of the Qur'an as honestly and as fairly as he could. When he'd finished, he did not claim that he had a perfect manuscript to the last dot and letter. He'd simply done the best job he could possibly do. And it was immediately given a sort of status of approval because Abu Bakr had commissioned it and he was the Khalifa of Islam. And that's where, for a while, we find that Zayid's Codex stops. Uh, it's not mentioned again for another 20 years in Islamic history. But let's have a look at it a little bit and just see some of the things that come out of this from what we learn from other traditions of Islam. Firstly, <clears throat> Zaid, as I've said, put together as honest a text as he could. But already we find from Ibn Abi Dawud again, from his kitab, that quite a bit of the Quran had already been lost. And I want to read this passage to you from page 23 of Kitab al-Masahif. Many of the passages of the Quran that were sent down <clears throat> were known by those who died on the day of Yamama, but they were not known by those who survived them, nor were they written down, nor had Abu Bakr, Umar or Uthman by that time collected the Qur'an, nor were they found with even one person after them. Now, it's very interesting here that you not only have a statement <clears throat> that portions of the Qur'an were lost, but you have a threefold denial of any preservation of these passages. Uh, the, the Arabic reads, Lam Ya'alam, not known, Lam Yuktab, not transcribed, Lam Yujad, not found. I like that threefold denial. There was just no record of them anywhere. They were unknown to anybody else, they'd never been written down, and nobody could find them anywhere. And that is before Zayid even set about compiling the Quran itself. We find that according to Islamic tradition, that even Muhammad himself during his lifetime was inclined to forget passages of the Qur'an that had previously, as he claimed, been revealed to him. This time I'm reading directly from the Hadith work Sunan of Abu Dawud, uh, volume 3, page 1414, the only English translation that exists of it. Aisha, <coughs> that was one of the wives of Muhammad, said a man got up for prayer at night. He read the Qur'an and raised his voice in reading. When morning came, the Apostle of Allah said, May Allah have mercy on so-and-so. Last night he reminded me of a number of verses I was about to forget. And that tends to reflect strongly on the belief in the Muslim world that the Prophet 
knowledge of the Quran was immutable. He just couldn't lose any part of it. But here in very uh, well-recognized work of Hadith, one of the six major works, is a clear statement to the effect that even Muhammad was likely to forget passages if he wasn't reminded of them. It's interesting also <clears throat> to note one of Zaid's comments on how the, he actually finished the text off, because this gives a little bit more light as to the manner in which it was actually compiled. I found the last verse of Surat al-Tawbah with Abu Khazaim al-Ansari, and I did not find it with anybody other than him. I've mentioned that already from another quote. But he mentions here, the verse is, Verily there has come to you an apostle from amongst yourselves. It grieves him that you should receive any injury or difficulty. And so it goes on until the end of the surah to which it belongs. But there's a slightly varying tradition to this in Ibn Abi Dawud's work, Kitab al-Masahif. In this case, we read that Khuzaima ibn Thabit said to Zaid himself, I see you have overlooked two verses and have not written them. <clears throat> and Zaid said, and which are they? He said, well, I had it directly from the Messenger of Allah. Here comes the same passage again, Surah 9, uh, verse 128. There has come to you a messenger from yourselves. It grieves him that you should perish. For he's very concerned about you to the believers. He is kind and merciful to the end of the surah. Same text. And Uthman said, well, I myself bear witness that these verses are from Allah. So here we find that instead of Zaid picking this text up from Khuzayma, Khuzayma actually came up to him and said probably something to this effect. I've had a look at your manuscript and I can't find certain passage of the Quran which we knew well. And when he finished reciting it to Zaid, Uthman, who at that stage was not a Khalifa, anything more than just one of Muhammad's early companions in our modern language, said, oh, you know, you're right. I, I remember that text as well. I, I'll confirm it. I'll second what he is saying. Now, that's part of the Quran, and so it is to this day. <clears throat> the point is <clears throat> that we can see from all these records of the early Hadith and the early Sirah literature and other works that uh, have survived through the history of the, the Islamic legend on how the Qur'an was compiled, we can see that the Qur'an went through a process of compilation and that as this process continued, uh, there was time given in the compilation of it to searching out, to finding, to learning, to trying to discover where all the passages of the book were. There were various passages that were missing. Uh, there were other passages about which there was some uncertainty. There were other passages that only one or two people knew. Um, as I said earlier, you can commend Zaid for attempting as best as he could to compile a complete text of the Quran. But the Quran which he compiled in the end was in a way an incomplete book. In a way, uh, texts were uh, uncertain. Uh, some had been lost. And at that time, the Quran, I don't want to say it was a sort of truncated version of what was originally there, not at all. It was a faithful record to a large extent of what, he, what was known among the Muslims and the companions of Muhammad at the time. But basically, the text was <clears throat> uh, anything but perfect, anything but a complete compilation of everything the Quran had ever been through the time that Muhammad had been with his companions. But as I said to you earlier, for about the next 20 years, we hear very little. 
By this time, the Caliphate of Umar, second Caliph of Islam, was over, and Uthman became the next Caliph of Islam. At this stage, we know nothing more about Zaid's text. There's no sign that it gained any kind of frequency among the Muslims or was even referred to. It just seems to have been kept as a semi-official text that Abu Bakr had ordered. But it was not publicized in any way, just simply there in Medina itself where it was being looked after. But we start receiving evidences in the early literature that there were other very close companions of Muhammad who by this time were compiling their own texts of the Quran as they knew it, some of the very closest companions, some of whose names we've heard already. For example, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Ubay ibn Kaab. Let me read you this tradition from the Sahih of Al-Bukhari from volume 5, page 96, in respect of Abdullah himself. <coughs> Masruk Nasr narrated, <coughs> Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was mentioned before Abdullah bin Amir, who said, that is a man I still love. As I heard the Prophet saying, learn the recitation of the Quran from four, from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and then this tradition specifically says he started with him. In other words, it's emphasizing the fact that he was regarded as the foremost authority on the Quran. And then come the others I mentioned earlier, Salim, Muad ibn Jabal, and Ubay ibn Kaab. So Muhammad is recorded as re regarding Abdullah ibn Mas'ud as the foremost authority on the Quran, which is not surprising as he had been one of Muhammad's earliest uh, converts uh, from the time when he was in Mecca. And he had had time over the next 10, 20, 25 years to really work at memorizing the text, which is what he spent a tremendous amount of attention and time doing. At this stage, as I mentioned, Zaid's codex of the Quran was just lying dormant, <clears throat> according to Bukhari, volume 6, page 478, it was just retained in Hafsa's possession, Hafsa being one of the wives of Muhammad as well, and she just, in fact, I think in another text actually says she just had it under her bed, uh, nothing more than that, just looking after it. Seven years after he became the Khalif of the expanding Muslim world, Uthman found himself in a crisis situation. Because with the Muslim world growing and expanding, some of the areas where Islam was beginning to establish itself were some distance from Medina, particularly the area of Kufa in Iraq, where uh, Abdullah ibn Masud's text was being widely read and accepted. And being one of the Qura, he himself was highly respected on anything he taught and said. Same goes for Ubay ibn Kaab, who by this time had moved into Syria and so on. And these communities began to rebel against the <coughs> Uthmanic rule from Medina. <coughs> There's not too much to tell us exactly what that was about, but we do know that there was concern in Medina as to whether these areas were going to break away from the control of the Khalif and as to whether it was going to start splitting the early Muslim world. But we have a tradition which indicates the, what happened next in terms of the Qur'an, and I'll mention a little bit more shortly as to what's really behind this tradition. But it does tell us why Uthman now took steps to canonize and standardize the Qur'an even further. It comes again from Bukhari, from volume 6, page 479. I'm going to read the words to you. Hudayfa was afraid 
of their differences, that's the people of Sham and Iraq, as the tradition says, in the recitation of the Quran. Well, that's a new thing, that they're actually reciting the book differently to the Muslims of Makkah and Medina. So he said to Uthman, O chief of the believers, save this nation before they differ about the book, that's the Quran, as the Jews and Christians did before. So Uthman sent a message to Hafsa saying, send us the manuscripts of the Quran so that we may com compile the Quranic materials in perfect copies and return the manuscripts to you. Hafsa sent it to Uthman. Uthman then ordered Zayed ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Zubair, Sayyid ibn al-As, and Abdul Rahman bin Harith bin Hisham to rewrite the manuscripts in perfect copies. Uthman said to the three Qurayshi men, In case you disagree with Zayid ibn Thabit on any point of the Quran, write it in the dialect of the Quraysh, as the Quran was revealed in their tongue. They did so, and when they'd written many copies, Uthman returned the original manuscripts to Hafsa. Uthman sent to every Muslim province one copy of what they'd copied and ordered that all other Quranic materials, whether written in fragmentary manuscripts or whole copies, be burnt. Now, this is a, a telling and a cutting tradition uh, in terms of the collection of the book in its early stages. What it tells us is that Uthman called up Zaid's text for no other reason than that, in fact, it wasn't being circulated. He was very concerned, not so much from what we can see about the recitation of the Quran in Kufa or in Syria or any other part of the Muslim world, but that the fact that these men had authority through their knowledge of the Quran <clears throat> and would be able to uh, you know, stir up and uh, lead any kind of revolt against Uthman that they might wish to, <clears throat> simply because the people respected them so highly. <clears throat> and it is very probable that the reason why Uthman took this action to call out Zaid's text just as a matter of convenience, not because he thought it was perfect or because it was better, it was just there. It was in Medina, been authorized by Abu Bakr, so it had an, a sort of official status to it. <coughs> and his aim was to then do seven transcriptions of the book and send it out to these areas. And he said, burn your texts, burn your differences, and we impose this Quran on you so that you it was almost in a way a masterstroke so that you will submit to the authority of Medina in political matters as well. But it is interesting to find that even at this stage, Uthman wasn't convinced that Zaid's text was 100% correct. He bore in mind that Zaid had only become a Muslim sometime after Muhammad had moved to Medina. Zaid was from Medina. He was one of the Ansari. He was one of the helpers. He was not one of the early Muslim converts to Islam. So Uthman said to the other three, he said, you folk come from Mecca, where Muhammad originally came, where the original dialect of the Quran was. Uh, if you find that any part of Zaid's text is not consistent with the Qurayshi dialect of the Quran, then change it, put it into the correct text. So even here you find that Uthman was taking a few liberties himself to formulate the text, standardize it, <coughs> and bring it into a more complete form or into a more accurate form of what it originally was. Now it's interesting at this stage to read uh, the comments of Ali, who became the fourth Khalifa of Islam after Uthman <clears throat> in this respect. 
back to another authoritative work, Ibn Abi Dawud's Kitab al-Masahif, page 22. By Allah, he did not act or do anything in respect of the manuscripts except in full consultation with us. For he said, what is your opinion in this matter of Kirat, in other words, reading? It has been reported to me that some are saying, my reading is superior to your reading. That is a perversion of the truth. So we asked him, what is your view? He answered, my view, and listen to this very carefully. My view, Uthman says, is that we should unite the people on a single text. That expression again that I like because it gets the definition of what the Quran has become. Not what it was originally, but what it has become. Mushaf Wahid, a single text. Then there will be no further division or disagreement. So we replied, what a wonderful idea. Someone from the gathering there asked, whose is the purest Arabic among the people and whose reading is the best? They said the purest Arabic among the people was that of Sayyid ibn al-As and the best reader among them was Zayid ibn Thabit. So he, that is Uthman, said, let the one write and let the other dictate. Thereafter they performed their task and he united the people on a single text. Now you can see from this passage that the Quran itself did not, right at the beginning, become formulated into a perfect text. It was going through a standardizing process. It was going through it basically because Uthman was concerned about the political differences in the Muslim world, not because he was worried too much about the different readings that people like Abdullah ibn Masud or Ubay ibn Kaab had in their texts. And he was determined to unite the people on a single text so that he could bring them into a political unity <coughs> with the Madinan Khalifate maintaining control. When you realize that, you can see the motive was basically just to use the Quran, standardize it to bring about a political uh, solution, ideal solution in Uthman's view. It's important to remember this. Just in passing, I want to just mention something about the uh, authorities that I'm referring to. Um, you'll find in the Muslim world, very few people, very few Muslims ever talking to you about these texts, these hadith, these records. Uh, most of them don't know about them. Their Muslim imams and leaders don't tell them about them. It's not in their interest to do so because today throughout the Muslim world, one of the sacred uh, convictions of all Muslims is that this Quran, which in the printed form we have it today, uh, was, is an exact replica of the original preserved tablet in heaven and that not a dot, not a letter has been changed ever since it was originally revealed. So they don't like this sort of stuff. How authentic are these records? Well, the, key, the difficulty here is we're not entirely sure. We don't know the early history of the Quran right back to the time of Muhammad himself, other than these texts, which come about 200 to 300 years later. But they've survived in the Muslim world, even though they tend to go strongly against Muslim preferences and Muslim convictions. That argues very strongly for their authenticity. Had there been any question about the authenticity of these records, you can be sure the Muslims would have willingly uh, done away with them. They would have written them off and said, no, they're not authentic. The fact that records like these, which tend to reflect negatively on the history of the text of the Quran, certainly undermining the idea that the Quran is a perfect text in its preservation, 
these would have gone. You can be sure of it, they would not have allowed them to stay. They're there because <coughs> the early Muslims were quite satisfied that these were sound records. <coughs> Ibn Abi Dawood himself went to great length in his book, Kitabu Masahif, to collect all the records that he regarded as authentic <coughs> to give some idea as to how the Quran was eventually standardized into the form in which there is today. And once again, as I said to you earlier, the motive of Uthman was not to sort of perfect the Quran. Nothing was further from his mind. The motive was to get consensus, to get a unity in the Muslim world on one single text. And Zaid's was called up for no other reason than it had Abu Bakr's authority over it. Secondly, it was non-controversial. The other Qurans, the one of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Ubay ibn Kaab, were exciting controversy because this is where all the trouble was beginning in the Muslim world. And that's why Uthman said, make sure their copies are burnt. Not because he thought they were inauthentic or because their different readings weren't reliable, but simply because it was causing division. So Zaid's text, which has simply been looked after by Hafsa for 20 years, just became a very convenient text because there was no controversy around it. And so it was also very expedient for Uthman to impose a Medinan text on the Muslim world and so bring political unity. Quite clear that there were serious divisions in the text itself. And this is another reason, perhaps, why Uthman ordered the destruction of these texts, ordered them to be burnt. I want to remind you, these texts were from some of the very closest companions of Muhammad himself. Just in passing again, had these texts survived to the present day, I have little doubt that if they, there was no question about their authenticity, the Muslim world would jealously preserve them. <clears throat> How they would have resolved the differences in the variant readings between the texts and Zaid's text, I do not know. But if they were known to literally have the fingerprint of Muhammad's closest companions on them, they would have been very jealously preserved. Texts written out on the dictation or directly by hand by companions, some of the most well-known, well-revered Sahaba of Muhammad himself. But the, the way in which Uthman just ordered them to be destroyed, I mean, even in the Muslim world, I, I just wonder how Muslims read this and just picture the Khalif taking these carefully written out texts of the Quran, handwritten texts, and just burning them. Um, somebody said uh, in the past that when it comes to Christian Bible, it's only been burnt by its enemies. But these Quranic texts were burnt by Muhammad's friends, <laughs> by his own companions. Today, when you challenge Muslims on this, they will say, oh, no, you know, this, this only took place, even if they admit it. They say it only took place because these were different dialects that the people were speaking in and that uh, <clears throat> it was just different pronunciations and different dialects of different areas. There was no real difference in the text itself. But that's very hard to believe because the, the irony is that in the earliest scripts of Islam, the Hijazi text or the Al-Ma'il text as it is known, uh, the Kufic text and a few others, um, they didn't have any vowel points. So it's not a question of different pronunciation. They only had consonantal texts, as you find in most Arabic texts today, but not in the Quran. Today's Qurans are always fully vocalized when they print it. But that wasn't the case at the time. So Uthman talking about differences in the Quran and variations could not have been thinking about variations of language or just of uh, pronunciation. 
it was obviously uh, differences in the text itself, perhaps clauses, perhaps words, perhaps sentences, perhaps whole passages that were different. It's quite obvious that that's what he had in mind, and it was the purpose was to eliminate those. In fact, what he did, one would expect, was to, ex uh, to excite some kind of opposition from the Muslim world to what he was doing. Um, we read, for example, <clears throat> that in Islam at the time, Ibn Abi Dawud says, on page 36 of his kitab, that he was accused of obliterating the Book of Allah. And that's exactly what he did. He simply burnt manuscripts of the Quran. You can imagine what would happen in the Muslim world today if any Muslims had any kind of cause to burn Quranic texts in public. It would cause quite a furore. He not only accused of burning the codices, but the Muslims of the day accused him of burning the Kitabullah, the Book of Allah, the Quran itself. And this resulted in further and further opposition. Instead of stopping rebellion, it got worse until Uthman himself was finally assassinated. But as I mentioned to you earlier, even he was not satisfied that Zaid's text was complete. And he wanted it revised. said to Zaid, make sure that the text is correct before you transcribe it. Make sure you have some agreement on it and make sure it's in the correct dialect. Now I'm going to read you another uh, hadith. This is from Bukhari at this time. Uh, Zaid said, I missed a verse from Surat al-Ahzab, that is Surah 33, when we transcribed the Mus'haf. I used to hear the Messenger of Allah reciting it. We searched for it and found it with Khuzayma ibn Thabit al-Ansari from among the believers or men who are faithful in their covenant with Allah. That's now Surah 33, 23. So we inserted it in the relevant surah in the text. It's not an easy tradition to handle because once again, it's the same person who was referred to earlier who had come to Zaid 20 years earlier and said, hey, you've missed a text of the Quran, one of the verses, and you must put it in. It's a bit strange that Khuzaima uh, did not mention this one as well at the time. But whatever the uh, history of it is, once again, and I'm quoting this from uh, Sayuti, from his record of it, once again you have a clear indication that even at this time there were still passages of the Quran that were regarded as missing. Perhaps Khuzayma in the years to come said, oh, there was another one that we left out and he realized he couldn't correct Zaid's text after Abu Bakr's death. But at this stage, when Uthman was again opening the door and saying, do a revision of the text if necessary, now he came forward and said, um, here's another one we've forgotten. We must add this in as well. <clears throat> Today, you can only regard Zaid's text of the Quran as a sincere attempt to get as close to the original as possible. There's no way that you can find any evidence in Islamic history anywhere to justify the presumption that it was a perfect text to the last dot and letter. There's no independent evidence to back that up. And the evidence there is, whether the Muslims like it or not, actually suggests the opposite, that the book went through a considerable revision before it came down to the text that we have today. Then you begin to find, when you go into other records of Islam, that still there were divisions among the Muslims. And by these, I don't mean just Muslim people generally. I'm talking about close companions of Muhammad, his own wife, one or two of them, Aisha in this case I'm going to mention. Surah 2, 238 in the Quran reads, Maintain your prayers, especially the middle prayer. 
Assalatu Wusta. Hard to reconcile that today with the five times a day prayer that the Muslims have. But in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, which is a sort of juristic record of traditions found in the other uh, Hadith records, and I'm using the book that I have, page 64, we read this tradition. Aisha ordered me to transcribe the Holy Quran and asked me to let her know when I should arrive at the verse, Hafidhu, Allah Salati, Wa Salati, Wusta, Wa Kumu Lillahi Ka Natin, Surah 2, 238. When I arrived at the verse, I informed her, and she ordered, write it in this way, Hafidhu, Allah Salati, Wa Salati, Wusta, Wa Salati, Asri, Wa Kumu Lillahi Ka Natin. She added that she had heard it so from the Apostle of Allah. And Hafsa, one of the other wives of Muhammad, said much the same. It's written in the Codex of Hafsa. This is not Zaid's Codex. This is a different one. It is written in the Codex of Hafsa, the widow of the Prophet. Observe your prayers, especially the middle prayer and the afternoon prayer. And that comes again from the authoritative work of Ibn Abi Dawud, Kitab al-Masahif, page 87. That's very interesting. Here is a uh, hadith or tradition right from the uh, wives of the Prophet himself saying that something's left out here. The words add the afternoon prayer in as well have been left out. By this time, I think there was no one who could actually change the text of the Quran deliberately. Zaid's text, once it had been copied and once it had been distributed across the early Muslim world, was regarded as final and authoritative, but these traditions stuck. These people knew that things were missing. Hafsa's text, by, uh, for example, was also destroyed, even though, according to Ibn Abi Dawud, page 24, she resisted it. It's quite understandable. She was one of the wives of the Prophet. She was the daughter of Umar. And she said, why must my text be destroyed? It's carefully preserved. Oh, said Uthman, we're wiping them all out. Every single one except one. And that is Zaid's text. We're going to get a single text, and we're going to use a single text, simply so that we can you know, avoid any further division in the Muslim world. But as you know, tremendous emphasis in those days was always given on oral uh, memory of texts. People spend a tremendous amount of time memorizing texts because we didn't have printing like we have today. Uh, anything written was scarce <coughs> rather than common as it is today. And for that reason, especially with the Quran, which the very word means recitation, and the Quran tells Muslims to learn to recite the text, that all these variants were kept in the memories of the people who knew them. So although Uthman managed to obliterate them in the actual manuscript of the Quran, the text of it, the, the Mus'haf, he couldn't obliterate them in the memories of the people, and the people carefully preserved these, some of these variant readings. In fact, when you look at um, Arthur Jeffrey's book, Materials for the History of the Text of the Quran, he goes into... At-Tabari's works, Kitab al-Masahif of Ibn Abi Dawud and others. And he has about 400 pages of variant readings of Quran texts known from the various different works of the time where these were recorded. They no longer survived in the manuscripts of the Quran, but they survived in the memory of the early reciters of the Quran. Let's have a look at some of these variant readings and some of the, the history behind them. Well, Let's go to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. He was regarded as the foremost authority on the Quran. 
and it's interesting to hear some of his comments that have been recorded when he was told to burn his text. Sahih of al-Bukhari, volume 6, page 488, he said, There is no surah revealed in Allah's book, but I know at what place it was revealed, and there's no verse revealed in Allah's book, but I know about whom it was revealed. And if I know that there is somebody who knows Allah's book better than me, and he is at a place that camels can reach, I would go to him. Now, this is just an oriental or an early way of saying, I really knew this book. And if there's anybody who knew it better than me, I'd go and have a word with him. Uh, Abdullah doesn't say whether he'd go and listen to him or go and correct him. I'll leave that to you to judge. But you can see from what he was saying that he was convinced that Qurras of the Quran didn't come better than him. And as I pointed out earlier, that that is exactly what the Hadith record says, that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, told him, uh, told the others around him, um, learn the Quran from four and named Abdullah ibn Mas'ud first. Well, Ibn Abi Dawud alone devotes 19 pages to the varied readings in Abdullah ibn Mas'ud's text that were known to have survived. We also know that initially, Abdullah refused to hand his text over to be burnt. Uh, this comes again from Ibn Abi Dawud, from page 13. Hudayfa said, It is said by the people of Kufa, the reading of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, in other words, that's what we must read. And it is said by the people of Basra, <coughs> the reading of Abu Musa. Uh, people a bit further south in Iraq said, no, we prefer Abu Musa's reading. By Allah, if I come to the commander of the faithful, that's Uthman, I will demand that they be drowned. Abdullah said to him, do so, and by Allah, you also will be drowned, but not in water. Nice way of saying you're heading for hell. You can see that Abdullah was anything but happy with the order to burn every manuscript of the Quran. So he goes on, once again, still Ibn Abi Dawud, page 15 this time. I acquired directly from the Messenger of Allah 70 surahs when Zaid was still a childish youth. Must I now forsake what I acquired directly from the Messenger of Allah? What he's saying is, there are 114 surahs in the Quran, and I knew 70 of them off by heart before that little youngster was ever born. How can he possibly have known this book better than me? Why should I burn my text so that his can prevail? Uh, rather compelling evidence, this. He even gave a sermon, a khutbah, from the pulpit of the mosque in Kufa, one of the earliest minbars, one of the earliest companions of Muhammad himself. And from the pulpit, this is what he told the congregation. The people have been guilty of deceit in reading the Quran. I like it better to read according to the recitation of him, that is the prophet, whom I love far more than that of Zaid ibn Thabit. By him besides whom there is no God, I learned more than 70 surahs from the lips of the apostle of Allah, may Allah bless him, while Zaid ibn Thabit was a youth having two locks and playing with the other youth. Once again, tells its own story. Wasn't exactly too pleased with this youngster whose text had superseded his. The envy and the rivalry between them is not the point. The point is that Abdullah regarded his manuscript of the Quran as far more authentic than Zaid's. And just remember, Muhammad singled him out as the foremost reciter of the Quran. I'm just going to give you one or two of the readings that you find in Ibn Mas'ud's uh, texts that were there originally 
that are not in the Quran today. And these come from various books, various records. And you'll see that there was uh, clear evidence here that the problem was not one of just dialectical, dialectal differences or pronunciation. Clearly, the text itself was at stake. Surah 2, 275 begins with the words, Alladhina yakulun narribba la yakumuna. Those who devour usury will not stand. Ibn Masud's text had the same introduction, but he added the words, Yomokiyamati meaning on the day of resurrection. They will not stand on the day of judgment. The variant is also mentioned in Abu Ubaid's Kitab, Fadil al-Quran, and it was also mentioned in the Codex of Talla ibn Musarif, another secondary codex that followed, and that, uh, <coughs> I don't know if one of the ones burnt, but certainly targeted, said to be independent on Ibn Mas'ud's text. Talla himself was also based at Kufa. <coughs> Here is considerable evidence that one clause in the second surah, Surah Al-Baqarah, um, it was missing and that it was included in Abdullah ibn Masud's text. <coughs> you might want to say, well, what difference does it make? Just one of those variant readings that doesn't change the meaning of the original. And that uh, you can do with the New Testament text, you can do it with the Quran if you wish. The issue here, though, is whether this book is in fact the perfect text that the Muslims claim it to be because it's an age-old argument among the Muslims that the Christian Bible has got variant readings, been changed, what have you, whereas the Quran has been perfectly preserved. What you can see here is that that is not the case. There's so many evidences here of different readings. Which one's true, we don't know, but enough to leave the question open and to say we don't know what the perfect text of the Quran was. Surah 5, verse 91 in the standard text, contains the exhortation, <coughs> Fast for three days. Ibn Masud's text added the adjective mutatabi'atin, meaning three successive days. So the original Quran text says on three days fast, but Abdullah's text said three immediate days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as you, as you wish. But this variant is derived from Atabari's famous commentary. 15 volumes, I think it is, of how the Qur'an was compiled and other issues surrounding the Qur'an. The full commentary is known as the Jami, al-Bayan, Antawil, Ay al-Qur'an. And this was also mentioned, this variant, by Abu Ubaid. This variant was also found in Ubay ibn Kaab's text as well, also in the codices of Ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud's principle, Rabi un Khusayim. This shows that the text was well known, this variant reading. Just one word, but it appeared in the codices of a number of different scribes uh, in codices that were subsequently burnt before Zaid's text was given authority. I'll just give you a third one. Surah 6, 153 begins, which means, verily, this is my path. But even Mas'ud's text read, this is the path of your Lord. Again, a little bit of hair splitting in terms of any difference in meaning, but it's a variant. <clears throat> Again, found in the monumental work of At-Tabri, uh, book 8, uh, chapter 60, passage 16. Incidentally, Ubay ibn Kaab, who is one of the other reciters whom Muhammad commended, had the same reading, except that for Rabbakum, his text read, Rabbika. 
the secondary codex of Al-Amash, mentioned by Ibn Abi Dawud in his Kitab al-Musahif, that's on page 91, also began with a variant Wahasa, as in the text of Ibn Mas'ud and Ubay ibn Kaab. Ibn Abi Dawud even adds a further variant, suggesting that Ibn Mas'ud read the word Sirat with the Arabic letter Sin rather than the standard Sa'd. So instead of saying Sirat, it would say Sirat. All right, that all seems small, perhaps inconsequential, but the important thing here is that once again you have evidences in large numbers of variants in the text. <clears throat> Ubay ibn Kaab, one of the great reciters of the Quran, honored and commended by Muhammad as one of the top four, is very similar. His text of the Quran is recorded as having any number of variant readings. I just want to read to you a passage <clears throat> from Ibn Sa'd's Kitab al-Tabakot al-Kabir, volume 2, page 441. This is from one of the earliest works of Sirah literature. That Afan ibn Muslim informed us on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, he on the authority of the Prophet, may Allah bless him, said, <clears throat> the best reader of the Quran among my people is Ubayi ibn Ka'b. And he became known as the Sayyid al-Qura, the master reader. So whereas uh, Abdullah ibn Masud was regarded as the greatest authority on the Quran, this gentleman was regarded as the greatest reader of the Quran. <clears throat> but you find even in his text a number of missing passages. <clears throat> I want to just read to you a text which is, comes from Suyuti Zitkan. And to me it's one of the most telling texts just on the actual compilation in the Quran generally at this time and the subject of missing texts. Abdullah ibn Umar said, Let none of you say, I have acquired the whole of the Quran. How does he know what all of it is when much of the Quran has disappeared? Rather let him say, I have acquired what has survived. That speaks for itself. As I said earlier, it's not a truncated text. Certainly not. But it's certainly not a complete one. I'll give you an example with, of a whole missing verse from the Quran recorded again. Suyuti, but also a number, number of the earlier Hadith works, page 525. The religion with Allah is al-Hanifiyah, the upright way, rather than that of the Jews or the Christians, <coughs> those who do good will not go unrewarded. And that is said to have once formed part of Surah 98. Further evidence here of missing verses. This comes from Abu Musa al-Ashari. We used to recite a Surah which resembled in length and severity to Baro'at, I have, however, forgotten it, with the exception of this which I remember out of it. If there were two valleys full of riches for the son of Adam, he would long <coughs> for a third valley, and nothing would fill the stomach of the son of Adam but dust. That comes from Sahih Muslim, one of the uh, two most authentic records of the Hadith in Islam, volume 2, page 501. <coughs> Very similar, you find these words. We used to recite a surah similar to the one of the Musabihat, that's the last two surahs of the Quran, and I no longer remember it, but this much I have preserved. O you who truly believe, why do you preach that which you do not practice? And that is inscribed on your necks as a witness, and you'll be examined about it on the day of resurrection. <coughs> Widespread traditions. These they found in various works. And here is another. 
again from Suyuti's Itkan, this time page 525. When the messenger of Allah received the revelation, we would come to him and he would teach us what had been revealed. I came to him and he said it was suddenly communicated to me one day. Verily Allah says, we sent down wealth to maintain prayer and deeds of charity. And here comes that verse that you heard earlier. If the son of Adam had a valley, he would leave it in search for another like it. And if he got another like it, he would press on for a third and nothing would satisfy the stomach of the son of Adam but dust. Yet Allah is relenting towards those who relent. And so you can see, I could go on and on. There's so many other examples of passages that are missing from the Quran. And I'm going to finish this lecture with just one because it's a very famous one and it comes right from the authority of the second Khalif, Umar himself. He stood on the pulpit towards the end of his life. And this is recorded in different forms in various works of Hadith and Sirah literature. But I'll take it from the most famous from Sahih of Al-Bukhari, volume 8, page 539. Allah sent Muhammad with the truth and revealed the holy book to him. And among what Allah revealed was the verse of Rabjan, meaning the stoning of married persons and those who commit adultery. And we recited this verse, we understood it, and we memorized it. Allah's apostle carried out the punishment of stoning, and so did we after him. I'm afraid, he said, that after a long time has passed, someone will say, by Allah, we do not find the verse of Rajam in Allah's book, and thus they will go astray by leaving an obligation which Allah has revealed. Give it to you from the recension of Ibn Ishaq Sirah Rasulullah. Umar was clearly persuaded that this verse was part of the Quran as revealed to Muhammad and was concerned that over a period of time be forgotten. So he adds these words, Verily, stoning in the book of God is a penalty laid on married men and women who commit adultery if proof stands or if pregnancy is clear or confession is made. And in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, we read that Ibn Shihab reported that a man in the time of the Apostle Allah, knowledge having committed adultery and confessed it four times, the Apostle of Allah stoned, and so did we. And there are many traditions like that to show that it was a common sunnah, common practice in the early days to stone adulterers. And Umar said the verse is right there. It was there in the Quran originally. And I'm going to read to you the last one from the Muwatta of Imam Malik where Umar said, see you do not forget the verse of stoning and say, we do not find it in the book of Allah. But I want to tell you the apostle of Allah ordered stoning and we have done so after him. By the Lord who holds possession of my life, if people should not accuse me of adding to the book of Allah, I would have transcribed therein, and he gives the word, ashaykhu, washaykhatu, itha, sanaya, farjumuhuma. Uh, the adulterer and the adulteress who, who commit adultery, or the female, male who do so, order them to be stoned. And we have read this verse. <clears throat> Uthman sensed that by his time he couldn't have that written into the Quran. But before his death, he was, wasn't so much concerned to write it into the Quran. His concern was that the sunnat would be remembered and that the practice or the uh, punishment of adultery would be retained. But he clearly stated it came from a verse of the Quran which was given to Muhammad. So at the end of all this, as you look through the history of the text of the Quran, and I've only given you a selection of passages, you can see that the book went through a, a standardizing process. It was slowly brought down to the book we have today. If you look at any printed text of the Quran that you may buy in the Muslim world, well, they all look the same. 
It's very easy to do that when you're printing anything. But in the early days, when they were transcribed by hand, the differences were so serious that some of the manuscripts, in fact, all of them other than one was burnt. And the records of missing passages, variant readings and others are so voluminous that it's really um, strange that the Muslim world should claim that this world has been, this book has been perfectly preserved. Uh, an authentic text it may be to a certain extent, but not a perfectly complete one.